by way of review, let's uh, read uh, verses 1 and 3a again first, and we will read this under the, under the headline, Welcome Action. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would not, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. Yeah, I'm calling this welcome action, and I think when we did this last time, nobody seemed to disagree with that. So, so this is good. You know, so finally something is done to curtail the activity of, of this uh, destroyer, destructive and deceptive power. Now here is action less welcome. After that, he must be let out for a little while. You know how. So we allowed ourselves to be puzzled by it, and we uh, looked at a number of interpretations of the Book of Revelation, where where scholars are are thoroughly puzzled by it. And and some people say, as the most most amusing of the alternatives, uh, even amusing, especially because it is a proposal made by one of the leading Revelation scholars of all time, is that when at this the uh, turn in the plot, at this turn in the storyline, John, the, the author of, of uh, Revelation, must have died, and he only had his notes left on his desk in uh, Patmos, or, you know, and, and, and he left it to his uh, <coughs> fellows, his uh, residents. <laughs> Chris laughs. <laughs> he left this to his residents or to his students to finish the job, and they were very confused, and they so they messed up the storyline here. The text, there is something wrong with the text. Well, look at that handout from last time. You can see some of the scholarly views there. This would surely seem counterintuitive that somebody who is a certified agent for, of evil, certified, there is no, no sort of ambiguity about what Satan has been up to in the storyline of Revelation, that he now is... His, uh, uh, his actions are curtailed, and then he has to be let loose again. After that, he must be let out. And the emphasis is on necessity there. It's a strong word. Uh, and what should be the necessity for that? That is certainly a mystery, uh, and we have to read on and see what we come up with. We will cover now the next uh, verses 4 to 7, and just read it with very few comments. So if someone else would read Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Yeah, so what comments could we have from uh, about this text? Uh, of course, uh, my headline here is Resurrection and Vindication. There is clearly a resurrection here, uh, and uh, resurrection of those who have been beheaded. For And then our text says for their testimony to Jesus, but it could really be the testimony of Jesus 
that meaning Jesus' own testimony. It doesn't necessarily mean their testimony to Jesus. Actually, I think the translation is better if, if you say that it, they had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So, uh, any, any comments you would like to make on that text? There is resurrection, clearly. There is a kind of vindication, and that was mentioned by uh, Richard Bauckham in his Tuesday noon uh, comments on Revelation, that there is a sense in which those who have been seen as the losers, those who were on the wrong side of history, those who were uh, persecuted, they are now seen as the winners. Vindication turns... They are vindicated. Their faith is vindicated the tables are turned, as it were, and the losers now are the winners. Uh, I thought that was a good point. Then <coughs> he and I drove up to Oak Glen, and uh, we were talking, we <coughs> bought a piece of apple pie up in Oak Glen <laughs> and sort of finished our conversation on the book of Revelation, and he was making a comment on the on the Revelation 24, that the souls had been beheaded. Because, because what, what sort of historical reality, what sort of context would beheading belong in? I mean, when would that be? Because the Romans didn't usually behead people. They, uh, so there is a sort of, a kind of a, uh, what do we call it, an anachronism uh, in the sense of the, of the image of beheading. Beheading seems to belong to another time. It's not necessarily Roman times. And, and the whole passage, this whole verse, seems to be more sort of end-oriented. It is the worship of the beast and its image. The sort of the climactic uh, aspect of, of the story that is being featured here. It is the vindication of, 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 of people involved in that part of the, of the story. Read uh, Revelation 20, verse 5, and let's do audience reading here on these verses. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, well, our immediate sense of that, the first resurrection, you know, when you have a, when you have a, 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 qual- a qualifier like that, uh, you, you will think what? I mean, that there is a qualifier like that. Is there more than one? You know, wouldn't you? We'll all be sort of sensitized that if this is the first resurrection, well, there must be more than one. Uh, Read verse 6 now. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so... And now there is not just a mention, or the first resurrection doesn't only mean that there is another one. Uh, it doesn't seem to mean that. But it seems like which resurrection would you want to be part of? Better be part of the first resurrection. That seems to be privileged too. And then there is a notion of the second death. So if there is a second death, what does that, if you have to qualify that too, what does that make you think? Well, there must be more than one death, too, then, if there is, you know, first resurrection, more than one resurrection, second death, more than one death, you know, those kinds of, of consequences, just, just on the face of it. Okay, and then we'll read the first part of Revelation 20, verse 7. 
When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. It's just completing the circle, you might say, what started in verse 3. Let's just do the math on the thousand years. In verse 2, Satan is bound for a thousand years. In verse 3, Satan is still bound until the thousand years are ended. Verse 4, resurrected martyrs reign with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest not resurrected until the thousand years were ended. And then the resurrected reign with Christ again. So verses 4 and 6 are the same. Uh, resurrected reign with him a thousand years. And verse 7, Satan released when the thousand years are ended. So there is really, really just... Uh, really just two, two major facts here. or two, There are two, two, uh, two groups that are being described here, uh, or two, two realities here, a thousand years. And uh, what happens here to Satan? Satan is bound, and what happens here to Satan? Satan released. Well, who else is depicted here? Yeah, so resurrection here, right? And what do they do during the thousand years? They reign. Okay. And then, well, what happens to them after the thousand years? There is no sort of after the thousand years for them. Uh, what else? So resurrection of martyrs. And, we're, and that was the first resurrection. That's called the first resurrection, resurrection number one. And then what else we want to put on our timeline? Second resurrection. Where is that? So there is another resurrection here, is there? That's number two. Resurrection number two. The others, they were not resurrected until the thousand years were over. Any, any comments you want to do the theology of the thousand years here? Now, here is one point where you can really see all kinds of fra fragmentation. The, the pluralism in the, in the Christian community on the meaning of the thousand years is one, thing that you, one reason why many people probably do not want to do, have anything to do with the book of Revelation. Because uh, you divide into all kinds of, of groups. And now <clears throat> I'll show you a couple of those. Here is a, what is called dispensational premillennialism. This view is today the most influential view of the millennium. This is the most widely held view. In the books Left Behind, the Left Behind series uh, that has sold about 60 million copies in the U.S., it has not sold, uh, to my knowledge, much anywhere else than in the U.S. This is an American phenomenon. It is, uh, it is in a context of, of a segment of American Christianity that this... Uh, the, the left behind, I mean. The dispensational premillennialism, that view is held by in, in uh, charismatic and Pentecostal circles uh, all over the world, including, including in Norway, where I come from. But, uh, but the left behind 
type of dramatization of that narrative is an American, is an American phenomenon. Yes. The, the question here is on, on, uh, on whether there is something about uh, Israel as a political reality that, that the restoration of Israel has theological meaning in, in, uh, in uh, you know, interpretations of Revelation. And the answer to that is definitely that in this paradigm, Israel is going to turn to God. There is first going to be, there is going to be a sort of conversion of the Jews here, and, and the establishment of the state of Israel is an end-time sort of vindication of a certain type of, of prophetic interpretation. I, I do not intend to go into detail on those things. I just want to, to show, uh, show uh, uh, something that is common to all uh, of these views, <clears throat> that... Uh, anyway, this is the most influential one. Uh, uh, the great tribulation here uh, has significance because there is an event. That they posit, the, these interpretations posit an event here. Uh, that uh, So the question is uh, premillennialism, and, and this is <coughs> the technical term here is going to, is, is Pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. Pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism. It means that the believers in Jesus are raptured before the tribulation. They are taken away. Suddenly, you know, there is this notion of secret rapture. And the believers are raptured before the tribulation. Uh, And then the millennium, all of these views have a fairly optimistic view of the millennium looking at the millennium as a pretty good time because, of course, Satan is bound, and that should be good for everybody. So, uh, anyway, uh, the second coming of Christ then happens before, the, at the beginning of the millennium. Christ returns uh, in, in uh, this paradigm. And this is quite unfair to this view, but this is a view that I have decided not to become an expert on. <coughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think I, but that that sounds like that sounds like that sounds prejudicial, of course. But but uh, um, I think there is too much the theology of of this whole scenario here, which is so militant, so so political, is is a is in many ways a parody of the theology of the Book of Revelation. Yes. So Armageddon would be here, because there is, a, there is a rapture perspective. Some people think the rapture happens here. Some think, it, think the rapture happens here in the middle. Uh, but uh, so, so the Armageddon would be the climax then of the Great Tribulation. And that would make sense in some in sort of, there would be some, because you could do the trumpet sequence and make you know, Armageddon be, be part of that. And the Great Tribulation sort of fits the, the, the trumpet sequence to some, some extent. But you see, these are, these are given temporal sort of reference too. There is a seven-year tribulation. There are, so there is a composite of reasons why, why one has worked it out quite that way. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I did buy some of the Left Behind books, and I have, I have been reading some in it, but it is, it is quite a job to do that because there are so many books it's a huge, huge project to get, get through it. Now, this view, this dispensational premillennialism view, is a view that started in the 19th century. 
It started with the Schofield, uh, with the Plymouth Brethren, the Schofield Reference Bible, Darby and, and Hal Lindsay, and then Timothy LaHaye, those people, the author, who is one of the authors of the Left Behind books. And this has been hugely successful, but it is, as I say, the, the specifics of the Left Behind project is, a, is an American uh, project. The, what, in the, it is not only that, except for the Left Behind perspective. Okay, the historic premillennialism is, uh, is, more, is a little less specific. There is no rapture in the historic premillennialism. This is a much older view. And... Uh, and again, Christ returns at the beginning of the millennium. Now, where would the traditional Adventist uh, view fit? Where is the Adventist view here? Let, let's go back to that. Let's not answer that now. I'll give that. So there is, the difference here is that there is, it's, this is a view that is much less political. It has no rapture. And it all, but it also looks at the millennium as a good period. It thinks the millennium is, is a good time. It, it, it has an optimistic view of the millennium. Then there is amillennialism, there is where, where the notion of a millennium is thought to be a symbolic, a symbolic term. There is really no thousand-year period as such. The person who has been the advocate for this is Augustine. Uh, and Luther and Calvin and others who might, you might see them in an Augustinian paradigm. They also believe that the millennium is really, is really the same as, the, as history. The church age and the millennium overlap. And uh, it's, the whole time is a time of tribulation. And Jesus will come at some point, but not, not like you see it here in this kind of of, of before and after uh, the thousand years. So amillennialism used to be quite influential, but uh, and some quite a few people still hold hold it. I think I think uh, in the Presbyterian uh, Presbyterian communion, amillennialism is quite quite widely held because uh, I I know some some uh, very uh, nice p people in the Presbyterian community, and this is their view. Then there is post-millennialism. And post-millennialism, there is the, the difference here is that in all the others, the second or the others, premillennialism, of course, the second coming occurs before the millennium and post-millennialism, it, it occurs after the millennium. So that the post and the pre relates to when the second coming occurs. Again, this view too has a very optimistic view of the millennium that during the millennium, most people will be converted and turn to God. And, and it was kind of a golden age. Post-millennialism is less popular today because it is seen as a very optimistic view of history that in some ways has been defeated by historic realities. That his history has not, has not sort of moved in the direction of better, better, better. It is kind of... Uh, the 20th century in some ways has been seen as a defeater for a post-millennial emphasis. But there are still a number of people holding this view. So uh, just to get, get the idea. Now, where, where would the Adventist uh, uh, emphasis, the traditional view, uh, be? Uh, it would be more uh, with historic premillennialism. 
that the second coming occurs before the millennium, but there is a huge difference in the Adventist uh, uh, interpretation with others. Because all the others hold the millennium to be a golden age, and the Adventist view holds the millennium to be absolutely no. There is nothing golden about the millennium. It is, it is it's a sort of a, a no-man's land uh, in terms of, of good things, except for, for the vindication of, of believers at the beginning of the millennium. So let's do a couple of things here and 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 uh, just here is a summary slide, and this one I didn't need permission to download, so this one you can have. This is yours to keep. <laughs> uh, and you see the various views here. Uh, post-tribulation premillennialism is the most classic, and then the pre-tribulational is the dispensational view, the most widely held view, and and uh, the others we we have explained. So, any questions on these? Uh, on these uh, views of the millennium. Because now you get into denominational commitments quite a bit, as you can, you can tell. And, and some people who study the book of Revelation, for them this is sort of defining their identity to some extent. For many denominations, uh, even though they might believe one way or another, these are very much inferior. They are not significant beliefs. They are not important beliefs for them. That's, that's a good point. That, that there was a, that, uh, so those are, there are so two competing narratives here, of course, because the post, if post-millennialism was also prevalent in the mid-19th century, and the 19th century is also the time when you have dispensational theology coming coming to the fore. So you have two quite different narratives. But on the point of what happens during the millennium, they aren't that different because they're quite optimistic about, there is a sort of millennial optimism for both. The millennial optimism in dispensationalism is kind of supernaturally grounded. The, the optimism in post-millennial thinking in the 19th century is, is really history is going just fine, and it's moving in the right direction. The t- beginning of the 20th century was also a time of great optimism, tremendous optimism. The First World War and the sinking of the Titanic sort of was a sort of wake-up wake up events for the, the type of optimism that used to, that sort of carried into the 20th century from the 19th century. Yes? The idea of the rapture is in the Jesus, the synoptic uh, apocalypse in the Gospels, in Mark and Matthew and, and Luke, that there will be one, two will sleep in one bed, and one will be taken, and one will be left behind. And there is the term left behind, because there is one will be taken, one will be left behind. And there is a left behind perspective that has been played out. So, so you cannot, there is no, it's not like there is no, biblical imagery for these kinds of things. All of them have, have, are, are sort of helping themselves to biblical imagery. We're just interpreting the biblical imagery quite different, you see. So let's not discredit it. Let's not say that it is completely without, without uh, you know, basis in biblical texts. Well, the, the, the amillennialism uh, doesn't really go in. It, does, it configures things much more loosely you might say. So it sees it all symbolic. And uh, uh, I would, in the Augustinian vision of history, there is a sort of ongoing battle where the forces of evil are still there 
you know, whether there is a notion of a progressive defeat of the forces of evil, I think would be fair to say that Augustine envisions that. But uh, in the, in the post-millennial view, Satan is bound. And it's a great, very optimistic time. I'd say that the most optimistic of these is the post-millennial view. That could be debated, but that's my impression. Now, let's, uh, let's go on then. Uh, okay, now here are some summary statements then, <clears throat> and then to, to get to an interpretation that, that I would be willing to defend. Here are some projections for the future in these views. The most widely held views of the millennium see it as a golden age, a period of peace. <clears throat> the binding of Satan is understood as though Satan is coercively restrained for a time. That's a key. That's the, the coercively is, a, is, a, is my most important thing. And the language seems to imply that. The language is very forceful language. There is an angel coming down from heaven with a big chain, a chain and a key. And then he does what? And those wonderful action verbs that we feasted on last time, what were they? Satan is seized. He's seized, you know. They, all these action verbs, he's seized. Let's review them again. Seized, and then he's bound, and then he is thrown, uh, and then, then there is locked and sealed. You know, so all of these uh, these uh, verbs indicating forceful divine action to to all sort of curtail uh, the activity of Satan. That's what we're seeing here. So. And that's the so that you know the, a, 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 there is a sort of correlation then that there is that kind of coercive binding of Satan, binding of Satan understood in coercive terms. Now theologically, that is not an, without its challenges because if that is a solution, if if this if the cosmic conflict, the problems in the cos- cosmic conflict, can be solved by some sort of coercive intervention against Satan, you know, you would always want to know, why didn't you do that before? What is it sort of, why, what, what's the logic of that? You know, what is the logic? And then again, uh, if there is some sort of solution to that, then, then that solution disappears when Satan is released under the logic of necessity. After that, he must be released for a short time. So the notion of a coercive binding of Satan is a, is, is a notion that, that I am listing here as uh, I should have <coughs> sort of uh, indicated my uh, reservations, but I don't. I just list it. <laughs> yeah, so what you're saying is that there could be a symbolic sort of understanding of these, these uh, words that on... Uh, at the fa- at face value, seem to indicate a certain, uh, what should I say, literal action, and then there is a there is a more subtle way of reading that. I'd like to comment on what you the text in Luke Luke twenty uh, Luke ten. Uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, of course, this is when the, Jesus has sent out the seventy disciples, and they have come out. They have gone out there, and they have said even the. Demons obey us. Don't they say something like that in Luke? They come back, they are very elated because they have seen the power of the kingdom. And of course, Luke, Luke's story is the, is the story of the coming of the kingdom of God. And it's coming in a 
to, to change and to liberate people under oppression. Now, the, the, the way to translate, the best translation of that passage in Luke, I saw Satan fall like lightning in heaven, is not just to say that Jesus at this stage in history sees Satan falling like lightning from heaven. It is a rem- Jesus is actually calling up a remembered vision. It's a, it's a sort of pre-incarnational vision Jesus is remembering, the form of the verb. I, I, I wasn't prepared to discuss it here, but, but this is, I have done some studies on that passage. The form of the verb is really that it is best seen as though Jesus is sort of leaning back into that other time when he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven uh, in, sort of in, a pre, in a sort of pre-incarnational state. It does refer to what will happen on, on earth with Jesus and the Jesus movement, you know, the falling for, of Satan falling from heaven. But sh- clearly, uh, and I think that was your point, that, that there is more than a, just a literal sort of action uh, and, and coercive action, you might say. So uh, anyway, let's do a little more here. Uh, here is a... a uh, uh, view on, on what, the, um, what the meaning of the binding of Satan is. God binds the deceiver and sets up a period of time in which his will is perfectly clear and obvious to all. Satan is off the chart. He's not in the picture. Nevertheless, it is all to no avail. When the deceiver is set free, he still proves that humans cannot blame their sinfulness on their environment or circumstances. I think that statement is patently illogical. That is really quite a a self-contradictory statement because if everything is good when Satan is bound and if everything is bad when Satan is released, I would certainly blame my badness on on the environment. If it is the context, you know, the reality of Satan in the picture that makes things go bad, take him out of the picture and we'll be just fine. You see what I'm saying? I I do not follow the logic. If you could, if you could, uh, if anyone wants to, to uh, defend or explain that view so as me not feeling that he is contradicting himself, I would be quite happy to be persuaded. But it seems to me that it doesn't quite add up here. Here is another one. This is a dispensational reading. Just as he was allowed to enter Eden, so in the restoration of paradise, the millennial earth, he will be permitted to do it again. So that's, that's the p- paradigm He did it once, he'll do it again. This final chapter in the world's history will again demonstrate that people perpetually embrace evil unless sustained by sovereign grace. I find that to be completely incomprehensible, that statement. I just cannot see the logic of that statement. You know, so because it is, so is it the absence of sovereign grace that is causing the problem here in human reality? What, what is he actually wanting to say here? I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, maybe one of you will try to explain it. <laughs> anyway, I, don't, I just meant to, to do a, a sort of side glance here. Because the logic, what is the logic of the binding of Satan? What is the logic of Satan's release? What does it show? What does it reveal? What does it prove? Uh, that's what we're trying to, to find out here. Here are some things then, <clears throat> trying to add it up from a biblical, biblical perspective, using some of the resources that I, 
think are, are, are legitimate here in the book of Revelation. And some questions. What is the state of the earth before the millennium? What is the state of the earth during the millennium? And what happens to believers when Jesus returns? Those are the uh, questions I would like to, to, to shed some light on here in the minutes that remain. Now, in the book of Revelation, the state of the earth before the millennium could be depicted like this statement in the trumpet sequence. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Even when we grant that this is symbolic language, and it is symbolic language, and it is, uh, we have uh, explicated, I think, fairly well the trumpet sequence that we are seeing, demonic a demonic reality play itself out. What seems to be happening to the earth here? It isn't very good. You know, the state of the earth is not, it's not a good thing. The, the, you know, or here is the sea uh, specifically that is being, being damaged. Uh, and I, at the, my pa- in my paper at Andrews and also here in this class, I have argued that this notion of a third should not just be seen as a fractionation, that it is not just uh, looking at a fraction, so much of the earth, so much of the land, so much of the river, so much of the moon and the stars and the sun and so on, that it's a third that is being destroyed. That the third is, a, is, an, is in my view, a signifier of demonic agency. It shows the fingerprint of the demonic. It is the DNA of the demonic imprinted or manifested in in human reality. And then another text that parallels the trumpet sequence in the bowl sequence. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. Now you do the, write the autopsy report here. We have no pathologists in this audience. Do we? Or anyone who is... Yes, we do. <laughs> Let's have your pathology report here. <laughs> what do you see? Every living thing in the sea died. The sort of a state of the earth. It doesn't look very good, does it? It's a major disaster, exactly. So this is sort of in the run-up to the millennium, bad things are happening on the earth in the symbolism of Revelation. I think we could say that. Now, I want to energize some of these statements by Old Testament perspectives because our second uh, most important methodological uh, thing here is what? Most important is to do what? Be a re-reader. And the second is to look at the Old Testament antecedents for the perspectives in Revelation. So, summarizing here, the seals, trumpets, and bowls in Revelation depict a state of progressive devastation on the earth. Now, Old Testament projections. The book of Isaiah has three chapters. 24, 25, 26, four chapters. The book of Isaiah has four chapters that could legitimately be classified as apocalyptic literature. I think Ivan is nodding there, and we have, uh, there is a, uh, what's, what's his name now? Is it, it's not A.T. Hansen, but it is Hansen. Uh, 
who has written on the, the, the dawn of apocalyptic. And he uh, locates the dawn of apocalyptic literature in Isaiah, in this passage in Isaiah 24, among others. The earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth dwindled, and few people are left. There is a sort of projection of human history, a tendency in human history not to a golden age, but to something quite different than a golden age. That's the projection in the oldest, what you might say, the apocalyptic uh, reality in the Old Testament. Again, earth as wasteland. Same chapter, a little later in the chapter. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is torn asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunkard. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. That, again, is a perspective that I think uh, belongs, and many, think, uh, many people, I think, would agree that one needs to listen to these texts when we read uh, the book of Revelation and its view of the ending. Here is Jeremiah. I wish we could read more of this, but here's just a snippet from the chap- chapter 4. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was wa- waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and there was no one at all, no man, nobody, at all, and all the birds of the earth had fled. This chapter is the chapter where you have not the creation story. You have the story of what? Decreation. Decreation. You have a rolling back, a stepwise rolling back, where the world that was created now is retracing its steps in reverse and it's becoming decreated. See what, what he's doing here? So you need to read that chapter to get, get the feeling for that. So the notion of the earth as wasteland is a, is a notion that <coughs> where there is, a, there is a biblical rationale, biblical sort of reference point for that. And then you have this text in Thessalonians 4. We have a couple minutes left, so we'll do this one too. In the Pauline perspective on the end, the Lord himself, with a cry of command, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. I think I knew this text by heart. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of Bible reading. My father used to read the Bible a lot. And I think I knew this text by heart before I could read. I knew a few texts by heart before I could read. I had heard them said so many times in our home. And this is one of them. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will raise first. This is the resurrection, the return of Jesus and the resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This is a notion of the believers going where? Well, it could be the notion we're just coming up to greet him and then he goes to where we are. But it sounds like that the movement could be in the other direction, that the believers go where he is. You know, that other notion. So anyway, adding this up, 
Key Old Testament and New Testament texts paint a picture of the millennial earth, not as a golden age, but as a wasteland. In such a scenario, Satan is not bound coercively, but is bound by force of circumstances. What is going on on the earth? Nothing much, except that Satan is confined by a reality that is very much of his own making. And if it is, if it is true that believers are, are removed from the earth, it is a temporary removal, because the earth is also going to be redeemed. In the book of Revelation, the earth is going to be redeemed. The temporary removal from the earth is a sort of evacuation procedure that was necessitated by, by earthly reality uh, becoming, becoming sort of untenable. So in such a t- scenario, there is no, all these action verbs sort of fade. They become, they become much more timid words, as it were, because, because it is no, not coercive action, but the action of circumstances. I said this to people at Andrews because they, they want to have forceful action, force, forceful punitive action on the part of God uh, in, in, in the end time. But we have already, as an as a, in a interpretive community, we have already dis- dis- deconstructed notions of forceful intervention on the part of God quite a bit already. And I think this has been one of the really viable aspects of Adventist interpretation, if I may say so. And I do not want to do sort of brand name interpretations here, but I just say that that kind of conditioning should not be discarded easily. The first resurrection refers to the resurrection of believers only. And then, yeah, I think we have to skip this and the summary will look like this. Second coming before the thousand years, earth desolate during the thousand years, new earth after the thousand years, and uh, then we will uh, resume here uh, next time. And next time I'm going to shock you. I'm going to bring in a perspective that I think will, will really surprise you. I'm hoping that we can pull it off. I really hope we can pull it off. But if, we've, if, we, if we can pull it off, you will never forget it. It will, it will stay with you forever. You know, <laughs> that's my prediction. But I'm not sure we can pull it off. So I'll, 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 I'll uh, write you a note uh, on this. There is a, a, a PhD monograph written on the subject of the thousand years, J. J. Webb Mealy, after the thousand years, uh, that I think is quite good. It doesn't quite do everything I think he should do, but, but considering the resources that he brings to his interpretation, which is not a cosmic conflict interpretation from the ground up, I think he does quite well, and it is the book I would recommend the most on the subject of the thousand years. It's in your bibliography. Okay. See you for the surprise in a week.